0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, that's patreo dot com slash firstdraftwriters, and please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also, please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Leila Lalami, author of the novels Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits, Secret Son, The Moor's Account, and The Other Americans. Lalami was born in Morocco and educated in Great Britain and the United States. She lives in California, where her latest novel, The Other Americans, takes place. The Other Americans opens with Nora, The Other Americans opens with main character Nora, a musician who's living in Northern California, learning her father Dries has been the victim of a hit-and-run accident in the Mojave Desert. Nora works to piece together both her father's death and parts of his life she was never privy to. The novel changes points of view, and the reader meets the detective working the hit-and-run case, an illegal immigrant who witnessed the accident but is afraid to come forward. Mariam, Nora's mother, who immigrated with her father, Dries, from Morocco before Nora was born, and Jeremy, a former classmate of Nora's and veteran of the Iraq War. As the story unravels, issues of class, race, immigration status, and gender surface. The town of Joshua Tree and the surrounding desert landscape plays a major role in the book, and we began the discussion with Leila Lalami talking about why she chose this location for the other Americans.
1: I was born in the capital city of Morocco, which is Rabat, Uh, and then I lived in London, and after that I lived in Los Angeles. So my whole life I've lived in big, big metropolises, and I've always considered myself like a big city person. Um, But about uh, eight or nine years ago, my husband and I started going out to the desert, to the Mojave, go camping, go hiking, uh, particularly in Joshua Tree. Um, And something about the desert really spoke to me. I think it's because, as you said, it's very stark, uh, it's very quiet, and it's very immense. And for a while, it seems that there is no life in it. But in fact, if you just Sit still and pay attention. You realize you realize that it's actually thrumming with life, and that spoke to me. The fact that it was a place that required your attention, um, and I. Decided that I would set a story there because I loved the landscape so much. Uh, And um, I also thought it was suitable for a story that essentially starts off as a mystery of whether this hit and run is a crime or if it's an accident. Um, I thought it made perfect sense to put the story in a small town where all of the principals, so to speak, sort of know each other. Um, I thought that would work well with the mystery element.
0: The story is told through multiple points of view on the same incident, the same hit and run. You have um, many characters, but we we begin and end with Nora, and she's really the moral center and the plot center of the book. So tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about her. She's a musician and she has synthesia. Tell me about creating her and, and who you wanted her to be. Well, so Nora is basically somebody who was born in
1: the Mojave, but does not necessarily or did not necessarily at the beginning of the book see its beauty and couldn't wait after high school to get out of town and move to a big city. And as the book opens, she is uh, she's 29 years old, 30 years old. She is a, a musician. Uh, as you mentioned, she has this... Um, not a condition really it's just a different way that your brain is wired but it's synesthesia which is basically the perception of uh both color in in her case both color and musical notes are fused um and she's a composer but she's struggling because the field of the field that she's in obviously is very male dominated and she's having trouble sort of placing her pieces in festivals and other venues So she's a struggling artist Uh, and so she lives in the Bay Area and as the book opens, she finds out, uh, she gets that phone call that we spoke about and she finds out that her father has been uh, killed in this hit and run and she has to return to this little town Uh, and that's how the book opens. Um, She was a character that was present to me from the very beginning. I knew I wanted to have her in the story uh, and write about her. and initially, she was one of only three main characters in, in in one of my earlier drafts. It was her, it was the detective, who's obviously in charge of investigating the accident, and it was Nora's love interest, who's in the book, who's Jeremy. Um, so those were the three, and as uh, through the process of writing and rewriting and revision, then it kind of opened up to the other characters, so that in the end, we end up with nine characters,
0: nine narrators. I think her her relationship with her father was much less complicated than with her sister and her mother. She's the youngest. I think she felt a certain sort of support from her father and not the same from her mother. It's it's sort of common
1: in you know in immigrant families, you know, obviously there's a lot of pressure to be sort of successful it's like and that usually means financially successful you know becoming a doctor or a lawyer an engineer something like that and Nora of course does not fit into that mold and so hence her sense of feeling alienated from her mother who really puts this pressure on her and also from her sister who actually is the image of that perfect sort of immigrant daughter um by contrast, her father, the father, the man who's killed at the opening of the book, has been supportive of her, been supportive of her music. Um, and she really um, idolizes him as she's growing up. He's basically like uh, the father that she loves. And so she's obviously uh, heartbroken when she finds out that he has passed away, or that he's been killed, rather.
0: I think, too, in in her family dynamics, and I wondered if this was something you wanted to explore, not just with this family, but also with immigration in general, you have the realists and you have the dreamers. And so the realists are maybe maybe there's more fear in their life, but also that fear is 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 rooted in something real in terms of the environment and the racism and that sort of thing and, and wanting maybe a secure job. And then there's the dreamers who want to go out and make their way and create new opportunities and maybe in some sense, throw that caution or or the desire for something really stable to the wind. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if you can talk about that
1: yeah, I mean, I think also that that dynamic that you describe as sort of like the the realist versus the dreamer is a dynamic I've noticed in so many families. Like I wonder often if it's not something that's driven by biology and by the need to differentiate oneself from other siblings. Where one sibling, say for example, an older sibling is a scientist, then I'm going to be an artist. Or if the older sibling is a realist, then I'm going to be a dreamer. I really don't know, but it's something that I would say in almost every family, you're going to have one child that's going to be a realist and one that's going to be a bit more of a dreamer. Uh, And I think it's particularly pronounced in this case just because. Uh, of the the sort of details about the family the fact that the parents Dries and Mariam came to the United States in 1981 because Dries was basically uh, politically active in Casablanca and was getting on the verge of getting in trouble with with the police and so they left in a hurry and resettled in the United States and started this restaurant and so they really feel that they have left behind their homeland and they have left behind their families and they have left behind their friends Um, and that puts a pressure on the children that they have to not let that sacrifice be in vain and to be successful in, in their fields but even with that that doesn't mean that one of the children is not going to want to be a dreamer. And in the case of this family, it is the younger child, the one that's born in the, in the US, who is who who is born long after the family has basically become settled and be, and has and owns the restaurant and is doing better, but the older child, the one who was only a toddler when the family has arrived arrives in the United States. Um, has seen the sacrifices, has you know, had to uh, watch her family really uh, struggle in the early years of their resettlement, and so she doesn't take anything for granted, and she really feels this pressure to uh, become a, a doctor. At which she she doesn't succeed, so she becomes a dentist, uh, and she has a very successful practice, and she's married to another dentist, and you know she lives in this a nice home and so she really has tried all her life to fit into the mold that that i think is expected of
0: her so which are you <laughs>
1: Well, I don't think that it's. I'm necessarily one or the other. All of these characters are my creation, uh, and there is obviously the role that imagination plays and the role that personal inspiration plays. Uh, and if I were to sort of decide which part led to which I can tell you that somebody who, if I take the example of Selma, who's the dentist, and you think of her as the sort of uh, more STEM person, right? um, I was trained in linguistics, have a PhD in linguistics, and uh, did research on psycholinguistics and uh, experimental psychology. And so it's, you know, I have that training. uh, But then on the other hand, I'm also a writer. uh, And I've always uh, written my whole life. uh, And I've always wanted to have that creative outlet in my life. So um, obviously, now I'm a novelist, and I uh, publish books, so it's you could look at me and think I'm, I'm a dreamer, that doesn't mean that there isn't a part of me that's also a bit realist, because of the fact uh, facts of my life and how I've um, the, the choices I've made for my education and, and you know, the occupations that I had as I was uh, coming along.
0: I'm, I'm curious about your linguistic background and if you had a focus and then how looking at language in that way might impact your writing.
1: Well, I mean, I was born and raised in Morocco and um, when I was growing up, I did not know any artists. I grew up in a working class family. Uh, neither of my parents went to college, but they were both, um, book lovers and they loved to read. And I grew up in a house full of books. Um, even so, um, they were not necessarily people who encouraged the arts in their children, because what were you going to do with the arts in the 1980s in Morocco? These, this is a period of time. And this is, something that kind of comes up in the book this is a period of time that later came to be called the years of lead where there was this vast system of repression of you know dissidents and activists students and also artists, if if there was a, a writer who was particularly outspoken against the regime, then they also would get into trouble. So it just wasn't an environment where, uh, you know, parents would encourage their children to go into writing. So it's not, you know, it wasn't a field that I, that I was encouraged to pursue. Uh, doesn't mean, of course, of course, it doesn't mean that I didn't write. I did write Um it just, it was never, it never entered my head that this could be a vocation or something that I could do for the rest of my life. Uh, it was, I always thought of it as something that I had to do in addition to whatever else I was going to do, because I i knew I had to go to college and and find the job and support myself. So that was the, the bigger
0: priority. But was there something about linguistics that you learned that... That well, shaped it, how you how you see language or how you wrote?
1: Well, this, this is exactly that. If I couldn't pursue writing as a vocation, at the very least, I could sort of study language in a more analytical way and sort of become a researcher and a professor. So that was the career path that I chose for myself. Um, and I think it did, you know, by virtue of all those years of training, I think it did give me... greater appreciation for certain ways in which language is used in stories uh and who is speaking in what language and using what codes in stories so in all of my books this the other americans is my fourth book but in all of my novels there are characters who speak multiple languages you know uh, for example, in this book, the witness is and the witness to the accident is an undocumented immigrant from Mexico. The two parents who move here obviously are um, from Morocco. They sp- speak Arabic. Um, the Nora is is speaks English because she was born here. But uh, you know, there are other people in the book that speak different languages, and the same thing for all of my other books. Um, so the. It's definitely left its mark in terms of my sensitivity to um, language in both in terms of the storytelling and in terms of just on the page, you know, line by line.
0: One of the things that you get to do, I think, when you see the culture from the point of view of someone who came from another country is you notice things about America and you could infuse it with your characters And one of the things that you talk about that I thought was really interesting is the mother in the book likes talk shows on America. And Mm -hmm. one of the things she talks about was how Americans like public confessions, like they like to go on on talk shows and say they're having an affair, which is such the opposite of her because she's such a private person.
1: Well, so I'm an immigrant myself. And so I've definitely so I've lived nearly half my life in the United States. So I've been here a long time, but I can still remember uh, what it was like the first couple of years, you know, adjusting to American culture and noticing all the ways in which it was different from the culture in which I grew up. Um, One one big difference to me is that i grew up in a culture that divides the private and the public in very different ways than than it is than they are divided in in the united states and i remember being struck by the talk shows on television myself i wasn't really into them but i knew but then but i knew people who were and they would watch them every day and every day it was a new a new story and and so this character is definitely noticing that and one of the things that happens with her is that she notices that Americans love to confess on television and talk about their private lives and try to sort of heal from their problems. And she doesn't do that. And culturally, she wouldn't do that. Um, But at the same time, she's sort of fascinated by that and can't stop watching. So it and she basically spends her time watching talk shows in the first few years. And and also, you know, she's been told that it's a good way to practice your language and, and learn uh, English. So so that's sort of her excuse for watching them constantly. But of course, there's this draw of the sort of the voyeuristic aspect of all of it, of listening to other people's tra- problems and, and hearing these problems discussed openly.
0: I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the immigrant experience that you wrote about and maybe that you had that you were really emphasizing in the book when it comes to this family and Nora talks about it a lot, like being the new kid in the class and being having darker skin and people thinking that she's a terrorist, especially after 9-11 and all of the interactions that can make your life so incredibly tiring in this place that you chose to go to to live a better life. One of the things that interested me in this book is the fact that
1: you have a couple, Dries and Mariam, who decide to leave Morocco and and sort of move to California in 1981. And it seems a simple enough decision. He's getting into trouble for his political activism. Uh, If he stays, he will likely end up in jail. And then who knows what else? We know from the way in which the story is set up that his friend has been disappeared already. Um, so they come to the United States seeking safety. Um, and as the book opens, as you know, on the very first page of the book, you find out that he is killed in a car accident. So the idea that he came here looking for safety may not necessarily have been fulfilled. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to explore is what a single decision about moving to another country, a decision that, by the way, is made by millions of people every year across the globe. People are moving. What that single decision has, uh, what it does to a family, and the ripple effects of it, not just in the immediate moment of, of course, resettling is difficult and having to, to um, start a new business and learning a new language, like, it, it can be very difficult. But even the longer-term ripple effects of that, so, for example, in a book, we find out that the older daughter who arrives in the United States when she's three years old and goes to school and does really well and on the surface, everything is fine. But then the next time she goes to Morocco, she's already in her teens and she no longer remembers her grandmother. So even though the grandmother is still there and wants to speak to her, they don't have a language in common now. And so they have to sit together in companionable silence. The younger daughter, who's American, also cannot communicate with with the grandparents. Uh, and but because she has she wasn't born there, she doesn't experience the same sense of loss that the older daughter experiences. Uh, and then, of course, but with the but with the younger daughter, who's darker skinned than the older one, she gets the sort of uh, to feel the sort of racist uh, treatment at school. So all of these reactions, all of these events, uh, all of these interactions with family members or with strangers all flow from that single decision back in 1981 for the family to move here. So that's one of the things I wanted to explore in the book is like the different aspects of the, of one immigrant experience. It can be two adults coming here, it could be a toddler and it could be somebody who's born here and they will all be touched by immigration and they will all be affected
0: by it in sometimes radically different ways. So even though, I'm not sure how many years you've been here, but even though you've been here for a while, did Did writing this book illuminate anything for you? Did you learn anything new just by writing it?
1: Um, I mean, I think that what I learned is what I put in this book, which is that this ripple effect that I'm only now feeling because I'm at a stage in my life where my parents are getting older. uh, And so it is beginning to sort of really sort of dawn on me and sort of settling for me that I'm going to be away at a moment that they need me. And that's certainly not something that I was thinking about when I was in my 20s and I was in love and this American asked me to marry him. And I said, yeah, so, you know, it's, you know, you don't think about what's going to happen, you know, 20 years later. So, um, so this book is kind of a way to explore that and the complexity of the immigrant experience, which is really not something that we see in complex ways in our media, in the media in the United States at any rate, uh, where it's you get essentially two images. You get the image of the immigrant at the border with, who is presented as a danger, whether it's a danger to national security or a danger to jobs or a danger in terms of health. Basically, just a, a sort of very negative caricature of these people coming across the border, which is just terrible. Uh, Uh, coverage. And then the flip side of that is you get the image of the immigrant as sort of the hardworking, you know, salt of the earth type who is making everything, you know, the country stronger and is very successful and starts a tech company or I don't know what. And the thing is, is there are are 40 million immigrants in this country and their experiences are as varied as their numbers. Uh, Some are naturalized citizens some are uh, immigrants that are documented and some are undocumented but they all have that sense of living their lives in the in the particular in the singular but every time they see it in the media it is reflected back at them in the generic and in the political and in these caricatures so this book it was my attempt to you know, when I was going to write about immigration, I was going to write about it the only way I know, which is, you know, in the specific, that's what a novel can do.
0: I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the loneliness of your characters, who mostly this is Mariam, but, but how lonely it can be. I mean, you saw it also, though, with Ephraim and, and even your non-immigrants you see with Jeremy, who, you know, what was mm-hmm. off in in war and had come home there's a loneliness to most of your characters. Most of them, um, you know, even Coleman, the detective, had moved to this new place. Is that important for fiction, or was it just, you know, something that you wanted to explore?
1: I think because of the setup of it being nine different characters, I sort of, like, really fell deeply into these voices, and the loneliness was a consequence of that, because in writing them and in being faithful to them and um allowing myself to write very closely in the first person but really very closely from their perspectives without judgment i think that's what gets at that loneliness ultimately we are all alone no matter how much you know a person you're you you can not be inside their head or inside their heart and the art of fiction actually allows you to do that because you're using the eye and you are basically creating the illusion that you are inside the, the head or the mind of the, the head or the heart of the other person. I think that's why that sense of loneliness comes across in the book. And, of course, they all interact with one another. They all speak to one another. They all appear in each other's stories. But the stories are filtered specifically and exclusively through the first person. And that's what gives it the sense singularity, uh, virgin, on the loneliness.
0: The other thing that I think you know, the book calls to partly because there's a death, partly because it's an unexplained death at first, you know, it's, there's a mystery and something you comment on is that Americans always want to take action. They can't sit still with uncomfortable emotions. And this Mm -hmm. book is so filled with uncomfortable emotions from the, the relationships that aren't really steady to not knowing who, you know, what the hit and run, who did it to difference, even differences in, in, religion and faith between the mother and the dad or you know atheism no it's absolutely true i mean it's something that i think culturally
1: uh it stands out to me about america is that i think americans view themselves as a people who uh like to take action uh it's the the culture is individualistic it encourages entrepreneurship it encourages action it, it encourages boldness uh, people are taught, young people are taught from a very young age, this is the best country in the world, you know, the greatest country in the history of the world, you know, the, these are the myths that they grow up with, that children grow up with, with the singularity of America and the fact that you can achieve anything you set your mind to. So there is very much this sort of like ethos of of uh, success through action and action can only go so far, sometimes, you know, it takes even more effort to just sit and observe and pay attention and sit with that emotion that is uncomfortable, you know, and and think through what you're going to do next. And I think that that's what the mother is noticing when she's picking up in the chapter where she's sort of describing arriving in the country and the things that stand out to her. I think that's something that really stands out to her. and, and, And that's what she's referring to.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes, so I thought about this and I thought I would read uh, from The Bluest Eye, which is the very first book by Toni Morrison that I had ever read. Um, and she then, and then of course, I read all the other ones and she's been just a writer I admire profoundly and a big influence on, on my writing. Uh, this passage takes place in the Breedlove home, and uh, she's about to describe the inside of the house. There is nothing more to say about the furnishings. They were anything but describable, having been conceived, manufactured, shipped, and sold in various states of thoughtlessness, greed, and indifference. The furniture had aged without ever having become familiar. People had owned it, but never known it. No one had lost a penny or a brooch under the cushions of either sofa and remembered the place and time of the loss or the finding. No one had clucked and said, but I had it just a minute ago. I was sitting right there talking to, or here it is. It must have slipped down while I was feeding the baby. No one had given birth in one of the beds, or remembered with fondness the peeled paint places, because that's what the baby, when he learned to pull himself up, used to pick loose. No thrifty child had tucked a wad of gum under the table, no happy drunk, a friend of the family with a fat neck, unmarried, you know, but God, how he eats, had sat at the piano and played You Are My Sunshine. Tell me why you chose that. Because I think that this, this this passage does something very tricky, which is it starts off by telling you that the furnishings in this home are not really describable, and then it goes into these sort of fictional scenarios about how, if you were attached to these furnishings, the stories that that might be told about these the the, the furniture. So it's doing this trick where it's actually describing to you something through what it doesn't have and what it can't have. And part of the reason it can't have those things is because in the sale of furniture to this black family in Ohio, already the furniture being sold to them is defective. And, um, you know, right off the truck, the, the, the sofa has, you know, the back of the sofa is split and... It makes it harder for the family to even invest feelings or invest stories in the things that they own, and so the home, the the furniture looks a certain way and looks indescribable because of that. So it's just, I think, just narratively, it's it's a beautiful way of showing us uh, what's missing in that home.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: So I thought I might read from the mother's perspective since you liked it. When we moved to America 35 years ago, many things took me by surprise. Like gun shops next to barber shops, freeways that tangled like yarn, people who knocked on your door to talk about Jesus, 20 different kinds of milk at the grocery store, signs that said, don't even think about parking here. I remember pointing them out to Dries. They even have signs that tell you what you can't think. But above all, I was surprised by the talk shows, the way Americans love to confess on television. Men talked about their affairs or addictions or gambling problems. Women talked about their weight or plastic surgeries or their children they had outside marriage. Even teenagers had something to say, mostly about how terrible their parents were. And all of it, like it was a normal thing, I couldn't stop watching. The television sat on top of the supply cabinet in the back of the doughnut shop, and while I was washing dishes or mopping floors, I would watch Sally or Donahue, which in those days were on in the middle of the afternoon when the shop was quiet. My brother had told me that watching television would help me improve my English, and I will say I learned a lot of new words like paternity test and artificial insemination and AIDS epidemic. But my trouble was pronunciation. How easy it was to say tree when I meant three or utter when I meant other. I needed a lot of practice. Tell me a little bit about that. This passage, in order to write it, I, so the character is writing, she's about 60 years old. She's moved here in 1981. And I obviously was not here in 1981. But I had to summon the sort of emotion of what it was like in the first uh, few months and years where I was here, things that stood out to me. And then I then I use my imagination for the rest uh, and things that might stand out more to someone like her. Um, it was hard because it is actually really hard to write about the immigrant experience. It is not easy because we come up against these sort of, cliches of immigrants, the ones that I mentioned earlier, as either villains or heroes. Um, And also, just at, at, at the sentence level, this is a character who, as she mentions, has trouble with pronunciation. But she also, while she's, you know, speaking, she has like these long sort of uh, like really long sentences and one of the things i one of the tricks i had to use is how to figure out how to keep these sentences going as long as i could manage and make them flow as if she was speaking uh, so it was kind of a fun thing for me to write and it was also in some sense summoning sort of like those those early days of my being in in america and then mixing that up with with the specifics of this character so it was kind of fun all around where do you write so I write in uh, my office at home. There is a desk and a couch and the cat litter box because they have nowhere
0: else to put it. So it's in my office.
1: So he keeps me company.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I take walks.
1: Uh, before I write, uh, I I take a long walk. Uh, sometimes if I get stuck in the writing, take a long walk. Uh, and I also hike on the weekends. So I just try to get some physical activities and so much of writing uh, involves sitting alone um, at my desk. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, I always show it to my husband, uh, who reads everything I write. And then once I have like a full manuscript and everything is kind of where I want it to be, then I show it to my sister. And then I also show it to a couple of writer friends. How have you dealt with rejection? It's interesting. I mean, you hear all the time that rejection is is part of the writer's life. And Like, it is. Like, it doesn't matter at what level you write, you are going to get rejections. Uh, and it's never easy to to deal with it. There was a time when I was starting out where I was getting so many of them that I started cutting them up and making a collage out of them that I was hanging in my office. So it was almost exciting when you got a new one because you got to cut it up and and figure out where it would go into the collage. I guess the best thing, the best way for me to handle rejection is to immediately, you know, try and submit something else or use, use it to energize you. And, you know, it's emotionally, it's not always possible. Sometimes you kind of want to feel sorry for yourself. But if you feel, as I do, that writing is what you love to do, what you were called to do, then you have no choice but to keep trying.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Yes, is my favorite word. <laughs> I wish I would hear it more often.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Layla Lalami, author of The Other Americans. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, but please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.